This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, season's greetings, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 48, entitled Adam and High Human Christology. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. There is no doubt that the New Testament writers depict the human Jesus as possessing attributes that belong to God. Formerly, it was all too common for exegetes to simply look at this data and assume that Jesus, possessing traits and attributes belonging to God, must logically be God himself. The new trend has been to carefully note how God shares his attributes with his agents, namely angels, Lady Wisdom, the Logos, or other heavenly figures. Still, if all four gospel writers call Jesus a human being, shouldn't the logical starting place be to look at other human agents to ascertain if they too are recipients of God's attributes and traits? From a methodological standpoint, I find this way of thinking to be sound and worthy of pursuit. Biblical Unitarian Christology is best categorized as a high human Christology, observing that Jesus Christ is spoken of in exalted terms while remaining a fully-fledged member of the human race. This episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast will look at the first human being in Scripture to be the recipient of God's attributes and traits. This figure is the primordial human being, Adam. I've already noted in previous episodes how Jesus is depicted in terms of Adam, or as scholars like to call Adam Christology, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, and Hebrews. So be sure to check out those episodes if you wish to pursue this topic further. This episode will look at how Adam is empowered and blessed with God's attributes in hopes of understanding how Jewish authors thought of exalted human beings and creating an interpretive lens through which we can understand how the New Testament authors might too be depicting Jesus. I am drawing upon Daniel Kirk's work on the precedence to high human Christology within Judaism. So I'm giving him credit for his research. Let's look at a few ways that the primordial figure Adam is depicted within Judaism before we draw some comparisons with the human being, Jesus Christ. Our first point today is looking at Adam in Genesis chapter 1. Let's explore the connections between God and humanity in the initial depiction of Adam in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. As we can see, humanity is created in God's image 
and given authority to rule over God's creation. In Genesis 1.26, God creates humanity in his image and likeness. The word for image in Hebrew used here by the author of Genesis chapter 1 is tselem. This noun is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible to refer to embodiments of a deity in the form of statues and even within visible depictions of the gods. Genesis 1.26 also states that humanity was made after God's likeness. The word for likeness in Hebrew is demut. This word is more general than the former tselem, but demut is frequently used in Ezekiel chapter 1 to describe how the heavenly beings resemble and look like human beings. It is important to accurately describe what Genesis chapter 1 is saying about Adam's relationship to God. Adam is no mere representative of the Creator. Rather, Adam is God's human image and likeness on the earth. Furthermore, Adam properly functioning as God's image shares in the rule of God's creation. It could even be said that Adam was the human theophany of God insofar as he rightly functions as God's image, God's likeness, and the one who ruled the created order on God's behalf. It is so hard to discuss Adam in Genesis chapter 1 without taking a peek at the similar passage in Psalm 8. So it is to the Psalms that we will turn to next. Our second point is looking at Adam in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is significantly noteworthy as it draws upon the implications of the meaning of Adam's creation and Adam's purpose. Psalm 8 also draws comparisons between God and Adam, showing what it indeed means for Adam to be created in God's image and God's likeness. Consisting of only nine verses, Psalm 8 reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you have thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. The opening verse of Psalm 8 announces that Yahweh is our Lord, meaning that he is the ruling master possessing the majestic name throughout his creation. Verse 2 indicates further that God is the one who has defeated the enemies, a statement indicative of God's mighty power. The psalm, having praised God's universal lordship and the power to cause his enemies to cease, asks, how does humanity even compare to such a mighty God? 
When compared to the expanse of heavens and the ordained moon and stars, humanity is described as having been originally created to be slightly lower than God himself. However, humanity is crowned with glory and majesty in verse 5. To whom did this glory and majesty originally belong? Well, it belonged to God. It was God's own glory and God's own majesty that was bestowed upon humanity. And since this is drawing upon the Adam story, it was God's own glory and God's own majesty that was given to Adam. Glory and majesty are often regarded as traits and attributes belonging to God alone. But here, we see that humanity was originally created as possessing attributes which God voluntarily gave and shared with humanity. Furthermore, Psalm 8 and verse 6 indicates that God made humanity, or caused humanity, as the form of the verb in Hebrew indicates, to rule over the works of God's hands. Again, God made humanity to rule over the works of God's hands, or God caused humanity to rule over the works of God's hands, depending on how you want to put the Hebrew hifil verb. Indeed, all things were placed under the feet of Adam. In sum, Psalm 8 shows the connection between God and the primordial human being, Adam. God, who is our Lord, is the subduer of his enemies, and God created Adam to share in God's glory, majesty, and rule. Adam was therefore capable of acting as God's human agent, bearing God's unique glory and majesty as he ruled over the works of God's hands. It is not surprising that early Christians drew upon Psalm 8 in their understanding of the resurrected and exalted human Jesus. A third point today is looking at Adam in Philo. First century Jewish philosopher Philo Judaeus has an entire book dedicated to unpacking the contents of the Genesis chapter 1 creation story with the title, On the Creation of the World, or as it's put in the Loeb Classical Library, De Opificio Mundi. When Philo comments on the creation of Adam, he declares that this newly made human being would provoke a particular response from the animal kingdom. In particular, Philo writes, quote, In order that coming last and suddenly appearing to the other animals, Adam might produce anxiety in them. For they were sure, as soon as they saw him, to be amazed to worship him as a born ruler or master, end quote. That is Philo in his work, De Opificio Mundi, paragraph 83. As we can see, the animals, according to Philo, worshipped Adam, using the Greek verb proskuneo. The manner of worship was not casual or a mere polite gesture. It was as if Adam was their master and ruler. Philo continues to unpack his exposition on Genesis chapter 1 and Adam's place within it. Having noted that Adam's appearance brought subjugation to the animal kingdom, Philo asserts his understanding of the primordial human being's purpose and function. Quote, 
the Creator made man, after all things, as a sort of driver and pilot to drive and steer the things on earth and charged him with the care of the animals and plants, like a governor subordinate to the chief and great king. End quote. That again is De Opificio Mundi, paragraph 88. In short, Philo regards Adam as sharing in the rule belonging to God alone, in addition to receiving worship from the subdued creatures. Having explored the testimonies of three Jewish writers and their depictions of Adam's relationship to God, we can now look briefly at how the Gospel writers depicted the human being Jesus in similar terms. Our fourth point today is looking at the depictions of Jesus in light of Adam's high human status. One of the repeated assertions among Genesis chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 8, and Philo was the insistence that Adam shared in God's rule and God's reign. God, as the chief ruler and master, has empowered Adam to share in his reign over the created order. The sharing of God's rule and reign with the human Jesus can be observed in the gospel accounts. So what we can see through a variety of verses here is that the kingdom of God is also attributed to Jesus, being the kingdom of Jesus or Jesus' own kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 through 43, the parable concludes by saying, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's Matthew 13, verses 41 through 43, where Jesus' kingdom is described within a span of three verses as also the kingdom of the father. Thereby, the father's kingdom is shared with Jesus. Luke chapter 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, Just as my father has covenanted me a kingdom, I covenant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. That is Luke 22, verses 29 through 30, where Jesus says out of his own mouth that the Father has granted or covenanted to Jesus a kingdom, and Jesus is also going to share this kingdom with his disciples. And Jesus says that this kingdom that the Father gave to him is now my kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. So there we can see that the Father shares his rule and his reign with Jesus. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus says this to Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That's John 18 and verse 36, to where the kingdom of God is also called Jesus' kingdom. He describes it as my kingdom three particular times in that verse. There we can see, as we've seen with Adam, that God shares with a human being God's unique rule and reign upon the earth. Let's also look in the Gospels to where Jesus shares in God's glory. Jesus sharing in God's glory. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 has Jesus saying, 
For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's Matthew 16, verse 27, where Jesus says he is going to come back in the glory of his Father, meaning the Father is sharing the Father's unique glory with his Son, Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38 says something similar. Jesus speaking says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's Mark 8 and verse 38, where Jesus, the Son of Man, says that he's going to come as the judge in the glory of his Father, meaning the Father is sharing his glory with the Son of Man. A similar statement can be found in John 8 and verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. That's John 8 and verse 54, where Jesus doesn't have any glory of himself. It is only the Father who gives glory to Jesus. And this Father is the one that the Jews describe as our God. And in John 17 and verse 22, Jesus is praying, and he says to the Father, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. That's John 17 and verse 22, to where again, God has shared his glory with Jesus, and Jesus now sharing this glory with his disciples. And this, of course, makes a oneness, a oneness of mind and purpose between God, Jesus, and presumably his disciples as well. So the sharing of glory there in John 17, 22, does not equate Jesus with God. No, it gives a oneness in purpose because God has shared his attribute and his trait with Jesus, meaning his glory. Let's also look at passages to where Jesus acts as God's image and likeness, remembering that Adam was created in God's image and God's likeness in Genesis chapter 1. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's John 1.18, to where Jesus, who is the only begotten Son, explains, reveals, and unpacks the Father for us. And this word for explained at the end of John 1.18 comes from the Greek involving exegesis. Jesus has exegeted the Father. He has explained, revealed, unpacked, taught the Father to other people, and he does this as the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, in John chapter 14, there's a dialogue between Jesus and Philip. John 14 and verse 8 begins, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. That's John 14, verses 8 through 10, where Jesus clearly says that anyone who has seen Jesus has actually seen the Father because the Father is abiding in Jesus and the Father is accomplishing his own works in the human being, Jesus. 
Jesus there is functioning as God's image and God's likeness. And just as Adam exercised dominion and authority over the animal kingdom, Jesus also is depicted in the four Gospels as exercising authority over the animals. There's an episode in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus speaks to the demons. In Matthew 8 and verse 29, it says, They, the demons, cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us for the time? Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. That's Matthew chapter 8, verses 29 through 32, where Jesus demonstrates his dominion and authority over both the demons and over the group of pigs. Of course, Jesus, in the famous accounts, divides the loaves and the fish. He feeds the 5,000 Jews in one account, and he feeds 4,000 Gentiles in another account. But in doing so, he demonstrates his authority over the fish of the sea by taking them, dividing them, and multiplying them and using them to fill the earth. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says to Peter, However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. That's Matthew chapter 17 and verse 27, where Jesus shows a miraculous sense of dominion over the fish of the seed, where he can figure out which fish exactly is going to have money in its mouth. In Mark chapter 11, where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem triumphantly, it says in verse 2, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, where Jesus demonstrates authority and ownership over a random cult in the city. In conclusion, we have observed that the high human Christology depicted in the four gospel accounts owes some dependence upon earlier Jewish portrayals of the primordial human being, Adam. Within Genesis, Proverbs, and the writings of Philo, we saw that Adam shared in God's image, God's likeness, God's rule, God's glory, and was the recipient of worship. And yet, Adam remained fully human, fully mortal, and fully distinct from God. It was within this Jewish framework of an exalted, high human understanding of Adam that many of the characteristics of the human being Jesus begin to make sense. Like Adam, Jesus revealed and embodied the Father as a human being. Like Adam, Jesus shared in God's rule and God's kingdom. Moreover, Jesus bore the glory of God just as Adam was crowned with God's glory. And lastly, Jesus exercised his dominion over the animals just as Adam functioned as the ruler of the animal kingdom. 
These exalted attributes of Jesus Christ do not make him Yahweh and do not make him divine. Rather, they describe a human being who is fully and authentically sharing in God's attributes, just as the human being Adam was bestowed with the very same traits. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out our episode's description for a PayPal link. Thanks so much for joining us today. Again, my name is Justin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.